0: Hi and uh, welcome to our next edition of the the People Podcast, and uh, I am very pleased to introduce our guest for today. It's Dr. Jim Bentley, the Managed Director of Hunter Water, and uh, he's been so good to share his time today. Just come from the meeting with the Lord Mayor.
1: Yes, I have. yep yeah. How is she? She's good. Yeah, I like working with uh, Councillor Nuitali Nels. Uh, yeah, we work together very well. Really important, I think, doing the kind of job I do that. We work with civic leaders and university leaders. and Yep, yeah, so very good.
0: And there's, there's you, we know you love water. I do, love water. You do. But uh, you also love Newcastle.
1: I do. I've been here nearly three years. And before I came here, I really didn't know uh, how I was going to get on. And, uh, it, it, yeah, I like it. I like it a lot.
0: Good prospects. I, I like to think Newcastle hasn't had its best day yet. No,
1: but we're having really good days. All right.
0: Yeah. I feel the same way. Newcastle's not uh where you started though, you're obviously British. Yes. Uh but you've worked all around the world. You started at
1: Thames Water, was it? Yeah, my first kind of grown up job uh was with Thames Water in Oxford, in England. And uh I was with that company for twelve years but that took me to live in Istanbul for four years and I ran a Middle East business, so working in several Arab countries, as well as Turkey. And uh, so I lived there four years, then moved back to the UK, um, but looked after other parts of our business, like in Spain and various other places, so.
0: All the exotic, lovely places. And then yeah. went on to New Zealand, ran water in Auckland.
1: I, I ran part of Auckland's water system, yeah.
0: Right. Tell me about Istanbul, though. That mm. was fascinating. You are in that period where uh, it was the earthquake yeah. that happened yeah. um, while you were there. Yeah. And that was quite a,
1: quite a moment. It, well, it was. So I lived in Istanbul and we ran, our main project was we ran the water supply for a city called Izmit, which is, I don't know, an hour and a quarter's drive uh, east of Istanbul. And uh, while we were running the water supply there, in fact, we'd just commissioned a, the new water, water supply system I'd gone over to run. Um, a massive earthquake hit that city and 15,000 people died. Yeah. and uh, I found myself thinking I was a kind of commercial business person running a water system I found myself at the heart of a sort of humanitarian exercise because you had loads and loads of people missing H- homes had collapsed because it, it happened at 3 o'clock in the morning and, and then you had I think at one stage about 100,000 people living outside because their houses were unsafe and how do you get clean water to them? How do you deal with the sanitation issues? Basically, you've got a city not living in its homes.
0: My goodness. Mm. So you learn in that moment just how vital yeah. water is yeah. for sustaining life, That's really. Right. That's right. So yeah. needed.
1: Mm. Did you always dream about being a water man? <laughs> no. No, when I was very young. The first job I can remember I said I wanted was I wanted to be Prime Minister of the UK. Nice. Um, and given... Not now, not right no, now. No, given Mrs May and what she's having to deal with, with Brexit, um, I'm really glad I'm in water. Yeah, mm.
0: so really, so you were like, I one day want to be Prime yeah. Minister. when I was
1: very young uh, I remember saying I wanted to be Prime Minister. The other thing I can remember saying as a kid was I wanted to be chairman of BP, the big um, global petroleum oil chemicals company. Nice. Um, so I guess, uh, even though I'm an incredibly humble person, that kind of says something about I had quite big That's some lofty goals. Quite big vision about what I thought I was around for. I yeah.
0: love that. And what was, how were your folks like? Were they were they like go for it, Jim? Yes, or did they kind of bring you try to bring you down to
1: earth? Or <laughs> <laughs> um, most of the conversations were, were really encouraging. Um, from my parents, yeah. I, I don't. I do remember one occasion. Where one of my parents uh, made me feel a little bit kind of like I had ideas above my station, but that was one conversation really most of my childhood. Um, I think they they either kind of tolerated this cocky little kid that they'd got, or they actually thought maybe there was something that
0: well you weren't far off though you were definitely <laughs> th- yeah well, you had aspirations to have an impact on community, obviously yeah yeah, prime minister yeah. Yeah. running BP. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe uh, some uh, good financial gain in that one, but uh, you definitely had aspirations, I guess, to have an impact on the world around you then. Yeah. Did that, did that come from mum and dad? Is that something that they kind of did inspire in you, or where did that conviction come to want to have an impact
1: on the um, I know, think, community at large? I think probably a range of places. My dad was a minister, church minister. My mum was a... Social worker. Okay. Um, so both of those people had, uh, you know, community and caring for people type um, careers and and lives. Um, but also, I remember growing up in England being really struck with um, the problems in Northern Ireland. Mm. Uh, I, that's another job. I remember saying to actually, I said to my dad one day, um, "I'm going to be part of bringing the peace process to Northern Ireland." Of course, I knew nothing about that. I had no idea how that could have happened. But wow. I had this real strong thing about peace mm. and, um, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. It, it really struck me that here we've got, you know, people in, this is my very naive, uneducated view growing up, but people in Northern Ireland who apparently in the name of different types of Christianity were doing such terrible things to each other. Yeah. And that just didn't sit with me about, you know, Christianity is supposed to be about peace. Yeah. And, and of course, I know it's about much more than Christianity now, but this is my childhood view as I was growing up. The problems of Northern Ireland really weighed heavily on me. Wow. As a young boy. I was quite deep for a kid, wasn't I? I you were. I not really? really thought about that before. No. Mm.
0: So, Dad was a priest, Mum was a social worker. Mm. Did, you obviously are a Christian. Mm. When did you kind of have that moment where you made a decision for yourself mm. that you wanted to believe in God mm. or, you know?
1: Yeah, so I, was, I remember it distinctly. Um I was twelve. my parents had divorced um, and I was living with my dad um, and my older brother and my younger brother lived with my mum and my sister uh, lived with me and my dad and my stepmother um, and I just felt very you know unsettled and, and disjointed and um, you know one of the people in life that I was felt closest to uh, when I was a child growing up was my younger brother yeah. and he was living with my mum and I was living with my dad and oh, wow. I didn't really and we were two and a half hours by car apart from each other which doesn't sound a lot in New South Wales but in England that feels like the ends and of the earth. Especially for a child. As well. And for a child yeah. yeah so I only saw my mum and my um, younger brother in school holidays and mm-hmm. I don't think I ever saw them or maybe it was a a family event occasionally, but pretty much uh, it was school holidays only. And so you had these long periods of feeling like uh, things were missing, something was missing. And I remember a day, um, and I don't really know why, but uh, I'd been taken to church all my life and to Sunday school and all those kind of things. But at 12 years old, uh, a verse from the Bible that says that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Mm. And what really struck me is all things work for good. And I didn't really think too deeply about it, other than I had this really strong conviction that God can make this good. Yeah. And that was enough for me. Um, And that was the day I decided I believed and I was a Christian. Wow. 40 years ago. I am 52. You've got a look of shock on your face. I do. I really do. Yeah, 40 years ago.
0: Unbelievable, And so that obviously was a life-altering moment. Yeah, sure. You had another life-altering moment when your brother passed away. Mm. What kind of impact did that have on your life?
1: Um, that was um, horrific. Um, so he was 18, I was 21. Um, and I was like I am now. I was then a, a sort of one of the preachers in the church that I went to. Um, and I was preaching the sermon at this Pentecostal church in England, and, uh, and it was wonderful, and, and people became Christians that night and started new lives of joy and happiness and everything. Um, and my older brother was uh, in the same church. I think he was playing the keyboards in the band that night and everything. As you did. Yeah, and I went home, and uh, the phone rang when I got home, and it was my mum telling me that while I'd been in church doing that, my younger brother had been killed in a car crash. Gosh. So that was a massive life-changing moment, yeah.
0: What, what did you do through that moment then? Who, who did you kind of lean on?
1: Um, well, we did a lot of crying, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, I The first thing I had to do was go and find my brother, my uh, older brother. Who So we lived about three hours' drive from where um, my mum and my... Uh, younger brother and my stepfather and my sister lived, uh, so we were um, in the Midlands of England. So I'd gone to university up there, and I was now doing my PhD. And my older brother was at the same university as me, doing his master's degree. Mm. Um, so we were a long way from the rest of the family, and I didn't know where, where to find him. Um, but he was uh, in a in a in a house with a load of people from church, and I. I had to go and extract him from a group of 20 people all having coffee and hanging out together and tell him that our brother had been killed. It was an incredibly emotional moment. And then uh, actually the pastor of that church drove us the three hours down to where uh, my mum and the rest of the family were. Um, And so Tim and I had that three hours together in the car at the rawest kind of moments of emotion. That's my older brother, and I I think that... That does some bonding, forms some bonds that many other things uh, in life wouldn't do. Um, and then, you know, our, our sort of family unit of my mum, my stepfather and my sister, my brother and I, we lent on each other a lot for those next few days. Mm. And I remember as well um, a guy who was the pastor of the church my mum and my brother and my stepfather went to, and his name was Jerry, and... We'd had a string of people coming around trying to say meaningful, helpful things, mm. which is about the last thing you really need at that moment. In those immediate few days, it's all very raw and all very emotional. Wow. And Jerry came around, and he sat on the floor with all of us. We were sort of sat in a circle. We sat on the floor, and he just cried with us. Huh. Um, and then we had a quick, quick pray and a hug, and that was it. And I really remember that. I thought, uh, you know, he he wasn't trying to be wise and wasn't, he wasn't feeling the need to preach to us. He just wanted to share the pain. Wow,
0: what wisdom. Mm, just to I be present so. yeah. And, yeah, and to be compassionate and empathetic. I know your, uh, your mum has had a great impact on your life, mm. as well as your stepdad. Yeah. Uh, what, what are the other people that have
1: really helped shape Jim Bentley, who Jim <laughs> Bentley is today? Um, well, my late brother did. Um, I, I've never been a father, and uh, but uh, although he was only three years younger than me, our family circumstance kind of meant we had a um, an unusual relationship where um, I kind of felt he was more than a kid brother, and in many ways like a son to me mm. um, that's overstating it but I'm just it's hard to explain exactly what it was Yeah. Um, and there was a bond between Simon and I that I really appreciated then and have often appreciated later in life um, and that's kind of hard to put into tangible words what that means but that was really important um, I met a girl when I was 21 and uh, she was 18 and funnily enough how I met her was I was preaching in the church and she was in the congregation and our eyes met and... Float, float to convert? Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> she uh, she was a believer, which kind of was great, but I, I just, it was one of those really strange moments because there I was preaching my little heart out and my eyes struck uh, this uh, young lady's eyes and for the next few years uh, we, were, we spent a lot of time together and um, she had a big impact on me because... Uh, I think it was the it was a, a, a deep and loving and caring relationship with someone who, like me, had suffered quite a lot in their younger life. Um and I think that relationship helped me to realise that, you know, lots of people actually go through bad stuff. Yeah. And you can't come out the other side of it as a good, whole and gifted and valuable person. Yeah. Um so that was really important. Um my best buddy in the world uh, Stephen um, he uh, so we were both at university together I was best man at his wedding um, he told me he's given up uh, on me he's written his speech several times apparently and thrown it away and he's not going to bother again <laughs> uh, but he's he's sort of we are very close we I can tell him anything yeah. uh, and uh, he lives in England so I see him once or twice a year but it's it's always like you know you've been hanging out the whole time when you do and another couple of close friends in England uh, Martin and Mikey so my three mates in England and their wives and their kids are like my extended family and that's really important in my life and then I've got um, a couple of Christian mates one in New Zealand one in Australia so one's called Grant one's called Andrew they and their wives uh, have this kind of role in my life where they know they can give me advice, they can tell me if they think I'm out of order. Very rarely happens, as you can imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, sure. But we have that kind of open... They have permission, um, and that's really important, I think. I would agree.
0: Having people that can call you out and, and encourage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: But one of the things that sort of is a little bit difficult in that, is because I've moved around the world a lot, mm. these people who have known me for years and can have this deeper input into my life tend to be dispersed in different places so i have to make sure i've got got things around me to you know you can't wait till the next time you fly to england to you know have good friendship and sound advice
0: you know so are you purposeful in that then do you kind of at times make a, a real effort to to connect with others with your friends to um, keep yourself buoyant. I mean, you're carrying incredible burdens, yeah. you know, all, all, all
1: the time. Look, I am purposeful about it, but I I am also, uh, which surprises me because of the sort of job that I do and because I'm, uh, you know, I like public speaking and things like that, I'm actually quite a shy person. Mm. So um, it, it's, it's really important to me that I have good friendships around me, but I'm not the kind of person that goes hanging out at parties all the time and... Um, so, so there's, there's a, you know, a balance to be struck in, in life where I need people around me and I think we're all made to be in relationship with people and I think that's really important. Um, but it, it may take me a little bit longer than some people to, to make yeah, friends. Yeah. A real piece of wisdom, I think is wisdom, my late stepfather um, shared with me was that he said, you know, in life you'll have lots of acquaintances and they're all important and don't undervalue them. Mm. but you'll have a few friends as well. Wow. And make sure you remember the difference. And I take that in a really positive though. way. It's not It's not that, you know, acquaintances are things that are very shallow and unimportant, but that that's not what he meant at all. What he meant was, you know, you can have real meaningful relationships with a relatively small number of people, and they're really important and nurture them. So I consider myself very lucky that, you know, I've got friends in England who I've, you know, had very close friendships with for 30 odd years um, and I'm close to their wives and kids as I said but I've got you know people in New Zealand people in Australia and elsewhere frankly um, but when I come to a new place like this you know what do I do to meet people and make friends I find a church that I feel like I fit in which I found in your church which so I'm very mm. grateful for um, and that's that's what I need that's enough
0: wow well, uh, Talking about purpose, back to when you were a young boy and you had that conviction that uh, there was something in you that felt that you needed to contribute to society. What was the moment for you where, if there wasn't a moment, where you went, this is why Jim Bentley's on planet mm. Earth? Like, mm. what,
1: When would you say that
0: was? Or um,
1: Initially, so w- once I'd grown up a little bit, went to university, um... And I so say, I moved away from uh, where either of my parents lived. Um, and at university, I started going to this church, and I got very heavily involved in the church. And um, I just kind of assumed that I was going to be a pastor. Right. Um, and because I was quite good at speaking, you don't need to comment on that if you don't agree. But No, you know, I would agree with that. <laughs> That's a fair but, estimate. <laughs> but I was quite good at speaking, and I quite enjoyed it. Um and, and I, you, know, I was a deep believer in what I was talking about. And you know I knew that being in a relationship with a God who created me and cared for me had transformed my life. and I'd been able to deal with some of the darkest times of life and some of the great times of life in a different way to perhaps what otherwise would otherwise have happened, because I was in relationship with the God who created me. Mm. And I was really passionate about sharing that with other people. And I assumed, therefore, if you put all of those things together, it just seemed natural to me that I was going to be a pastor. And, and there was a period where part-time I was running a church uh, while I was actually studying for my PhD. And, uh, Seriously? Yeah. And I look back on it and I'm like, how did that ever happen? Why did that ever happen? Like, that was so not Right. Yeah, um, but it was all out of people's good intention, and I think my good intention. Um, but it just wasn't what I was supposed to be. Um, and then, I think the moment when I sort of first realised, hang on, this—you are supposed to, you're supposed to lead people and show people how to lead people. Um, I probably got that the most strongly uh, when I was—I was twenty-six and I joined Thames Water, the company that looked after water and wastewater and things in the south east of England. Um and I got given this job to be manager of a team of I think there were nearly seventy people and most of them were in their fifties and it was a heavily unionised environment, it was quite a combative environment and I found myself doing well in that environment. Mm. Uh, and I and I loved it. Yeah. Um And it challenged me in so many ways, you know um, and th- six years after I joined them, uh, I left the uk business and moved to Istanbul and I was really proud that at the leaving lunch that I had, my peers and my some of my direct team and everything were at this leaving lunch. but actually the union representatives from different parts of London had traveled to come to the lunch, and we'd had some kind of hearty conversations and quite deep uh, challenges over the years and one of them shook me by the hand and said i've disagreed with nearly everything you've done but if the next bloke's half as honest as you would have done well wow and i that to me was the such praise yeah i didn't really care about all the other speeches that were at the lunch is that right that was that was the most and that stuck with me forever um and when the guy came over to say that to me of course I didn't know what he was going to say and I'm thinking "Oh, well, here we go even on my last stuff. day yeah. it's, but I thought what an honor to have someone like that say that in other people's hearing and it kind of I think it told me that you know in in leadership you know being honest being decent treating people well doesn't mean to do that that you can't also achieve good business outcomes and Things like that, and and I feel passionately that uh, in a business, I'm there to achieve good outcomes for my staff and for my shareholders and for the community and the customers and the environment and what have you. Um, but that was the first time I realised there is something here, you know, and wow. I, I felt.
0: So it's not all about the bottom line.
1: No, yeah. no. What? Although I, you know, think that's really important, but it's one of many things that are important. But that moment, where that guy said, "If the next bloke's half as honest as you, would have done well," was it's probably the highest praise I've ever had in my career, at least in terms of how much I value it. That's incredible. The other time I would say that I realised there was a, you know, a real reason or a real purpose or a real calling or a something, um, was the earthquake experience in Turkey. Um, I remember, so I was in Cairo the night the earthquake happened because I'd just been made Middle East director for our company and I was visiting my team in Cairo and the first night I was there um, I got a phone call at four o'clock in the morning from one of my Turkish team. He said, Jim Bay, turn the television on. And I'm like, what are you doing? It's four o'clock in the morning. Uh, anyway, I did and a map of Turkey came up uh, with those kind of red circles around... The, air, the, the town of Izmit. And yeah. I'm like, gosh, what's happened? And on the bottom of the screen, it said, uh, you know, a hundred people presumed dead. And as I stared at the screen for the next sort of couple of hours, that number was growing yeah. and growing. Um, and it took me two days to get to my people back in Izmit because, first of all, the, earth, the um, air, airport in Istanbul was closed, so I couldn't land. Couldn't, couldn't, get, up, I couldn't get there. Then I got to Istanbul and the, where our plant was, was on a bay um, and uh, the, there was an oil refinery there that was on fire. And the authorities were concerned that the oil refinery would blow. Um, and so the road was closed and all the boating was banned from the bay until they would dealt with that. So it took me two days to get there. And then um, Yashar, my wonderful driver that I had in Turkey, he drove me through the gates of our plant and uh, I was sort of wiping the tears from my eyes as he was because it was an incredibly emotional time. Okay. And as we went through the plant, I saw some of my staff there and I saw this look of relief on people's faces and it was kind of like Jimbe's here. Jimbe will know what to do. Mm. And I remember having this moment in the car where I said, said to myself, I've got no more idea of what to do than they have. Because bear in mind, we water supply in a situation like that is an incri- it's the essential service. life well, source. Yeah, and it's it's end of August in the northern hemisphere, so it's very hot. It was thirty eight degrees, but the rains had started as well, so it was very hot, very wet. People were living outside. And there was no there was an
0: enormous no, pressure. Yeah, I can so
1: like for disease control and for all that kind of stuff, and just for day to day life, really important that we were on our own game and we did really well. I had this moment sat in the back of the car saying, what do you, what do, you do now? And I remember saying to myself, you, you get out of the car, you look and sound confident, and, and you lead. Hmm. And I can remember that, you know, walking through that next day, praying at the same time as speaking. Wow. Um, you know, it was like I had this intense, you know, in my mind, I was talking to God and listening to God and just asking for wisdom. And asking for the right way to deal with people and the right um, Extraordinary. things to do. It was an incredible moment. And I remember after, when the earthquake experience was over, which was months later, um, there was a period where I thought, what else in my career will ever have meaning again? Because wow. that, that was incredibly yeah. important. Yeah. Um, but I realised that that showed me that, you know, for all my flaws and... I'm not trying to any in any way to big myself up and say how good I am. But I'd been given an ability to handle situations and it was important that I used that ability.
0: It's quite remarkable how calamity or struggle can sometimes yeah. affirm or you know, a calling, a purpose yeah, yeah. in life for such a time as this. This yeah, is exactly. this is why God has placed me. Exactly.
1: In. That's 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 And quite we remarkable. we talked about that, you say for such a time as this. We talked about that so really good friends of mine in um, in Auckland. Uh, so I, I mentioned there's a guy called Grant, Kim and Grant, great friends of mine. They visited us thing. over here in Newcastle a few times. And another couple, Bryce and Sharon. Um, I can remember with them, we talked about this for such a time as this thing quite a lot because I, I was talking to them about my time in Turkey and I remember saying to them, but when I moved to Turkey, I didn't really know why I was going. Yeah, I had a strong sense of this is the right thing to do, and I'd had other offers from the international business to go and do different things. I, like, uh, it like There was a massive job in Jakarta I was offered, another one in Malaysia, um, and somehow I kind of knew that this Turkey one. Out of the middle of yeah, I didn't know why, but yeah. I just thought this was the one. And I remembered, you know, I say to Bryce and Sharon, I remember thinking. There's a reason I'm supposed to be here, and I didn't know what it was, mm. and that after that earthquake there was that strong sense of you know for such a time as this I was meant to be here at the moment absolutely yeah
0: that i mean that that's something that we can all do in our life. We can have difficult moments yeah. and and kind of look at it as in terms of a perspective of saying well this is this is my end or this yeah. is too much yeah. Or, like you're talking about this is a life defining moment where this is why yeah I've been placed yeah. here for such a time as this
1: and but I think we have to remember as well though it's not just for that time, yeah at that time, you were supposed to be there dealing with that thing, but there are so many other things you're supposed to be doing after that and and so it took me a while to get over the but if that was if that's what I was here for, mm. and I think I was uh thirty five or something when the earthquake happened, a little bit less than that, thirty three I think. Um and I thought, What do I do with the rest of my career? You know, you can you can almost overplay the for such a time as this I've done my thing. That's it now. But like, now wow. what? Now I just mark time till I retire. So I did have a little probably a few months of feeling a bit like that. I can imagine. And, yeah. And you know what I've realized? Um I think we did some good uh at that time. I think we helped prevent the disease outbreak I think we showed compassion to people who were suffering um, I've never cried so much with work colleagues as we all did during those months uh, because the you know more and more stories of, of loss and suffering came through and we supported each other and, and and that was a privilege to be a part of that and so I and many of my colleagues had the opportunity to make things better as a result of that and that was all really good but what it told me is that Later in life, you can do things that you don't have the script written down for. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And they're not always bad things. They're not always responding to a bad thing like that. It might be taking hold of a really positive opportunity. But it gave me a sense of, um, of courage that I can take on things that I don't necessarily know how to do. Yeah. And I don't need to know how to do something to say, I'm going to go for that.
0: You were just willing, willing to...
1: I think it's about being willing, but I think it's also about being positive and being confident. Yes. And, and I would say my confidence is in the giver of the gift that I have rather than in the gift itself. So mm-hmm. I remember uh, in New Zealand, um, I got a job as chief executive of a uh, water utility over there, um, and I was 39. And I remember... I remember thinking when I sort of went for the interview with the board and then got off of the job, I didn't actually know what I was going to do, but I had confidence that I would be able to find out.
0: Again, another defining moment. Yes.
1: This is why I'm here. Yeah.
0: Wow. Love it. It's been wonderful to hear your story and thank you for sharing it. And uh, thank you everyone for tuning in. You've been hearing uh, from Dr. Jim Bentley, the managing director of Hunter Water, and a faithful steward in our wonderful city. And uh, my name's Ryan. I'm the senior pastor of C3 People, and we're so grateful that you've joined us today.